0: I hate to lose things and I'm famous for doing that. Watches, keys, wallets, I misplace them and I lose them. I think it's one of the most frustrating and unnerving things that happens to us in life, losing things that are valuable. A few years ago, my wife and I were getting ready to go on our annual summer trip to this lake, uh, secluded lake in West Virginia. We were loading up all our gear. It's, it's obviously an outdoor place, so we pack mountain bikes and hiking shoes, and so I had started Laura's car with her key set but I was bringing mine as well and so I had to load my bike on the bike rack and so the car's running her keys are in it I have my keys I needed both hands to load my bike and so I put the keys on the top of the car on the roof and I strap the bike down and I get into my car and we take off and suddenly Laura hears this sort of metal scraping sound and she's like Damn, what is that I was like oh it's probably just my fishing rod clanking around in the back So we go a little bit further, drive four hours, stop and eat, and I go to use the clicker, right? We only had one clicker, it was on my keychain to lock the car, and I I can't find my key. The clicker's not there because my keys aren't there. I was like, "Where, where did they go? And then suddenly it dawned on me, I put them up on the top of the car and I never got them. And that sliding metal sound was not my fishing rod. Those were my keys sliding off the roof of the car somewhere in some storm drain in Watertown, likely. So what do we do? So I call my landlady and I said, would, would, would you please just go down the street and kind of look around? Now she's not in great condition, so she didn't go far. And so then I, I call our friends. Can you go a little bit further and just look for these keys? They've got a lot on them. They're like the dungeon master keychain. That's what pastors have. You've got church keys, house keys, all kinds of keys. So it's like clanging and bulky and big. And it's a pain to lose them and make all those keys over again. We couldn't find them. After a week, we come back. And Laura and I like to go on runs together, so we went on this meandering run, looking for every keys and every storm drain couldn't find them. It's maddening to lose things. We were intent in seeking to find what was lost. Today we begin an Advent sermon series, and I mentioned Advent means coming, and during the season of Advent, we first reflect on the first coming of Jesus. Jesus. What we're going to do in this series is answer this very important, this critical question, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? It's a question of utmost importance. It's in fact the question of life. Why did Jesus come physically, historically? And so what we're going to do is let Jesus answer that question himself. When we look at the Gospels, Jesus makes several I have come statements. They serve as purpose statements or mission statements, and so we're going to take four of those statements, one from each of the Gospels, and let Jesus answer the question himself. Why did Jesus come? And our question for this morning, the answer that Jesus is going to give them is, give us is this, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus intently, passionately seeks what is lost to reclaim it. Now, in this passage that we're going to look at, Jesus both declares and demonstrates. So he's going to speak out why he came, and then he's going to give us this living illustration of that. So he both declares his mission, and then he will demonstrate his mission. We find this in Luke chapter 19. Let's turn to Luke 19 in our Bibles together. The Bibles we provided on your chairs, you can find Luke 19 on page 878, page 878. And if you're here this morning and you need a copy of the scripture, we'd love to give free Bibles away. So as you walk in through the lobby, the bookshelf closest to the restroom, there are some black hardback Bibles there. Please take one. If you have a friend who needs one, by all means, get one for your friend as well. I'll read Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Luke writes... And he, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to seek him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This Zacchaeus story is a snapshot that vividly captures the essence of Jesus' ministry. Jesus came to seek and save lost people. And Zacchaeus is exhibit A of being lost in sin and death. Overcome with the cravings for more material things. Greed was his issue, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Through this encounter, we see Jesus seeking Zacchaeus. Seeking to save what was lost on that day in Jericho Jesus breaks into this man's existence and leaves him forever changed. It is a beautiful story, a beautiful encounter and a display of the power of Christ to change a person to find a lost person. So we're going to walk through this story, sort of in four stages of the story. So the first stage is we meet a lost character. In verse 1, Jesus and his disciples enter the town of Jericho. They're currently on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. This is at the end of Jesus' third year of public ministry. And so they're they're going for the, the Passover. They have to pass through Jericho. It seems like they're just going to pass through, but Jesus has something important to do on the way. We also see, as we just rewind just a little bit, What's going to happen in Jerusalem? We see the shadow of the cross being cast upon every part of Jesus' ministry. So if you just rewind a little bit, go up to Luke chapter 18, verses 31 and following. We'll see Jesus declare what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And taking the 12, Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. Jesus predicts over and over again, prophetically, what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He's going to willingly give up his life, die in the place of sinners, be raised again to new life. So the the shadow of the cross is falling upon all of his ministry. We have to review what Jesus does in Zacchaeus' life under the shadow of the cross. Because what makes it possible for Jesus to seek and to save lost people is the reality of the cross. That's where he's headed. That looming cross makes Jesus seeking and saving work possible. So to see this story under the shadow of the cross. So there they go to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus is about to change their travel plans and give a little pause so that he can minister to a man in Jericho. There in Jericho, verse 2, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. So here we meet Zacchaeus. He is exhibit A of a lost person. We meet Zacchaeus, and very quickly we learn three things about him. The, the text is terse. It's quick, it moves fast, but we learn a lot about him. First, his name is Zacchaeus, which is a known Jewish name. So this is a Jewish man. Secondly, we're told that his occupation is a chief tax collector, which meant that he was the overseer of a bunch of tax collectors there in Jericho. Now, tax collection was an occupation of ill repute. The Jewish people hated tax collectors. They were Jewish people employed by the Roman government to collect taxes on behalf of Caesar. And so they were regularly interfacing with Roman, unclean Gentiles, and they were doing the bidding of the Romans, collecting taxes on behalf of that oppressive regime that had occupied the Jewish people. And furthermore, it was a corrupt business. Rome levied the taxes, but they put no limit on how much you could take. And so if they said the tax was $10, a tax collector could say it's $12. And guess where those two extra dollars went? They, they lined the pockets of the tax collectors. And so it was a thoroughly corrupt business. And Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector, which means he's a manager or an overseer of a bunch of them. So he would have received an extra cut from all of their greedy doings. He's overseeing all of it. And as a result, he was despised. This gives us a little window into his social setting. Though he had all the money in the world, his social bank account read zero. He would have been a wealthy loner. Had everything materially. Had zero socially because his greedy work alienated him from other people. Zacchaeus was a social outcast, a wealthy loner. Now on this particular day, Zacchaeus' interest is sparked as he hears of this man Jesus who is coming through his town. So we meet a lost character, stage one. Stage two, a lost character seeks Jesus. That's what Luke tells us next. Verse 3, the text says Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. Zacchaeus is interested in Jesus. Evidently, he's never met Jesus because it says he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but he's clearly heard of him and his shockingly kind treatment towards people like Zacchaeus. Luke's gospel is filled with instances where Jesus reaches out to social outcasts, to people of ill repute, especially tax collectors. We get a good example of this in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Luke tells us, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus and the religious professionals of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and he even eats with them. Also in Luke 7, verse 34, Jesus is outright called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has relationship with the socially reprehensible. That's the heart of Jesus. He befriends people that nobody else wants to. And Luke majors on it. The dominant themes in Luke is Jesus reaching the socially taboo. And this is Zacchaeus, and this is what Jesus does. So no doubt, Zacchaeus has heard of Jesus' friendly reputation among tax collectors. And as he hears that Jesus is passing through, he thinks he has got a glimmer of hope. Maybe, just maybe, I can see him. Maybe I might interact with him. This guy's a friend of people like me. I want to meet him. Remember, this guy's a wealthy loner. His profession has alienated him from relationship, And relationship is a fundamental need of every human being, no matter how much money you have. You need people. You're created in God's image. God is a God of three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune God, and perfect unity. We reflect his communal nature. We need other people. Zacchaeus thinks, maybe I could just get eyesight on him. Maybe I could interact with him. Maybe... Just maybe I can meet him. But there's a big problem that prevents Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus, isn't there? It's actually a small problem. Zacchaeus is a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. So what does he do? He he can't see over the tall heads in the crowd. And so what does he do? He runs on ahead of the crowd and does a very undignified thing for a wealthy guy. He climbs up a tree. You see this childlike eagerness. He's going after Jesus to get a glimpse of him. He runs ahead of the crowd. He climbs up a sycamore tree, and he perches, and he waits for Jesus to come by. Well, we find that Zacchaeus gets up on the tree just in time. In verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must come to your house today. That verb there is is a verb of divine necessity. It is divinely necessary that I come to your house today. The sovereign Lord has an appointment, a lunch meeting. Zacchaeus, it's time for lunch. And I'm sitting across the table with you. Jesus befriends the social outcast. The socially reprehensible? Now the tables begin to turn here because up to this point, it seems that Zacchaeus is the one seeking Jesus. Zacchaeus is the one exerting effort to get eyes on Jesus. But then we need to pause at this moment in the narrative and ask, wait a minute, who is seeking whom? Just who is looking for whom? Jesus is the one who, in fact, is seeking Zacchaeus. So first, we meet a lost character. Second, we see a lost character seeking Jesus. Thirdly, we see Jesus seeks a lost character. Three actions on the part of Jesus show that he is the one who is, in fact, primarily seeking Zacchaeus. First, Jesus notices Zacchaeus. On a busy street, packed out with people, Jesus Notices the unnoticeable. The man who nobody wanted to be around, who's perched up in a tree, people packed out everywhere. Jesus notices this socially invisible person. He draws near to the lonely. This is the heart of Jesus. He notices the unnoticeable. He, in fact, sees the socially invisible. And isn't it good news, particularly this time of year that Jesus comes along and draws near to the lonely, to those who are without others in their life? You know, Christmas can be an incredibly isolating time for many people, elderly people, widows, widowers, internationals, single moms, single people. Street-involved people. Christmas can be incredibly isolating. It isn't good news that Jesus draws near to the lonely. That's the good news of the incarnation. As lonely as Christmas can be, if people would receive the good news of Christmas, Christ coming, Emmanuel, God with us in the incarnation, it's the best news that could ever fall upon a person's ear. He welcomes them into relationship with him and through that, he welcomes them into a local church, a body of believers. Jesus notices the unnoticeable. Jesus also calls Zacchaeus by name. I mean, this is stunning. You can almost miss this in the text. Zacchaeus doesn't know Jesus. He's never met him. We read earlier in the text, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. They've never physically met. But as Jesus passes by that sycamore tree and sees this man perch, it's like the reuniting of an old friend's. Zacchaeus, There you are. If you're Zacchaeus, you're like, how does he know my name? How does he know my name? The text reveals the clairvoyance of Jesus, the omniscience of Jesus. He knows him. He knows his name. And they never met. You're meant to be shocked by this. Wait a minute. This is the God-man who knows all things, and yes, during his earthly ministry, sometimes he, he veils his omniscience, his divinity, and sometimes he reveals it. Here, he's pulling back the current and, and revealing it. Zacchaeus, you come down here. It's like old friends. Zacchaeus likely almost falls out of the tree. We don't read that in the text, but he comes down hurriedly because his desire for relationship is about to be met. Somebody wants to have lunch with him. It's been a long time, an awful long time before he's had lunch with a friend. Jesus shows that he's the one seeking Zacchaeus by noticing Zacchaeus, calling him by name, and by also a self-invitation for lunch. You know, self-invitations are always a little bit awkward. I mean, how do you feel when somebody says, hey, I'm coming over? I mean, that's essentially what Jesus does, but it's okay when Jesus does it. I'm coming over. It doesn't matter what you have in your fridge, I'm coming. I mean, it's unnerving, but Zacchaeus is thrilled. This guy's got resources, probably got plenty of food. He's not worried. Jesus has matched Zacchaeus' seeking effort, and he's about to far exceed what Zacchaeus could ever hope for. How does Zacchaeus respond to this personal invitation by Jesus? Verse 6, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus does exactly what Jesus asks of him. He quickly comes down. He prepares a meal. He's ecstatic to be with Jesus. The man who is called a friend of tax collectors and sinners is befriending a tax collector and a sinner. The lost is about to be found. Now, just like we see earlier in Luke chapter 15, there's a negative reaction to Jesus pursuing relationship with this sinful tax collector, isn't it? We're not given their identity, but we can ascertain who it is. The religious people of the day all grumble, verse 7, because he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. It's safe to assume, based on the context and what comes prior in Luke, that these are Pharisees and scribes, the religious professionals of the day. And their grumbling is an indicator of their heart, their hard hearts being resistant to the work of God, trusting in the work of God, messy as it is in their midst. They grumble. Grumbling in the Bible, friends, Old and New Testaments, ought to be a warning sign for us. It is a warning sign. Thanklessness, grumbling is a warning sign. It's reflective of a hard heart that is just resistant to the work of God. Beware a grumbling spirit in your own life. Thankfulness, gratefulness is always the better way to go. In verse 7, this grumbling by the people and the crowd over Jesus entering the home of Zacchaeus represents this hard-heartedness. These are people who refuse to acknowledge the work of God in their midst, the presence of God, the unfolding plan of God. And here the text is drawing a distinction between a religious orientation and a gospel orientation. What do I mean by that? During Jesus' earthly ministry, he's constantly confronted by religious people. People who, you would, who knew the Bible, you would expect them to welcome the Messiah, but he was a Messiah who came in a category that exploded their minds in an upside-down plan, an upside-down kingdom. He came in lowliness. came in weakness. These religious people wanted to fit Jesus in their own self-managed box, but Jesus was constantly exploding the box. A religious orientation looks to what human beings can do in their own moral exertion, in their own ability, keeping the rules, making the rules, adding unto the rules, And Jesus is not in keeping with what they view as their own rules. Gospel-oriented people pursue Christ and his work messy as it is. It is messy to get in the muck with people. Consider your own life. All of our lives, as polished as we can make ourselves temporarily, we all have mess in our lives And Jesus is in the business of getting into the mess and doing the work of the gospel. I mean, this is messy stuff. This is a guy that nobody wanted to be around. Nobody would have time for. Jesus does. He gets in the mess, and he has lunch with a guy because he's got a purpose to find this lost man, to transform this sinner. Gospel orientation. You're willing to get into the mess and pursue the work of Christ in the midst of it. Allow Jesus to explode your categories. We all tend towards law, towards moralism, towards kind of keeping things in a nice kind of contained area. That's that's the nature of like trying to obey God in your own strength. It's anti-faith. Because we want to look at that and say, look what I did. Look how I kept things. Look how I measured up. No, no, no. It's a religious orientation. A gospel orientation is one that pursues the work of Christ by faith, trusts in Him, even though He is exploding your category religiously. How do we respond to the messy work of Christ? Are we willing to move outside of our comfort zones for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of a relationship? Are we willing to pursue people genuinely in the context of a local church? Are we willing to pursue people in evangelistic re- relationships all around us. God has placed us in these circles of relationships in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our classrooms. It's messy work. The gospel is messy work. But God does it. He's right in there, elbows deep with us in the mess. Are we willing to have hard conversations for the sake of forgiveness and reconciliation I mean, Christmas is, is a time of year where oftentimes we're gathered around family and we all have brokenness in our families. There's no such thing as a fully functional family. It's hard to have these interactions. Wedges of unforgiveness have been driven into families. Christmas time is, is a strategic time. What might it look like for you to have a conversation that is long overdue this Christmas with somebody that you are sideways with relationally? Pray and seek to have a conversation get into the mess, be a gospel oriented person who's willing to cross some comfort zones and get in there in that mess and allow Christ to work. After this negative judgmental response from the Pharisees and the scribe, Jesus meets Zacchaeus and we see this wonderful transformation of this man. So first we meet a lost character. Second, a lost character seeks Jesus. Third, Jesus seeks the lost character. And then fourthly, and finally, a lost character is found by Jesus. A lost character is found by Jesus. We read in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What is Zacchaeus doing here? Brothers and sisters, this is a striking picture of repentance. He literally does a 180 degree turn from the way he was going and now follows Jesus. A man who is cheating and defrauding and deceiving now empties his pocket, is willing to give half away to the poor and pay back fourfold what he has taken. His heart is being changed right before our eyes through the kindness of Jesus that he's experienced. It's an amazing picture of change in a human repentance. And Zacchaeus being a Jew goes back to what he's been taught in his Bible in Hebrew school as a young boy. What was restitution if you've stolen something? Exodus 22 verse 1 states that if a man steals a sheep and either kills it or sells it, he is required to pay four sheep back for that stolen sheep. Fourfold restitution. Zacchaeus remembers the Bible stories Parents and Beacon Kids teacher, listen. Those things are going to soak in. Zacchaeus, though he's far from God, remembers the teaching from little Hebrew school. He pays back fourfold. That's what he's he's hearkening back to Exodus twenty-two and verse one. He pays back fourfold those he's cheated. This is repentance, and what triggers it, brothers and sisters? What triggers it? It's the kindness of Jesus across the lunch table that changes this man's heart. The Bible says, Romans two, verse four, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We often think it's the judgment of God that leads us to change, and, and God can not do that. But oftentimes it's the kindness of God that leads a sinner to repentance. When you experience his love and his mercy, How good he is to you and how undeserving you are, it changes you from the inside out. The kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. And across that lunch table, Zacchaeus has experienced something that he's never experienced before. Somebody who welcomed him and loved him no matter what he's done. That's the gospel. Jesus welcomes you no matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how shabby your life is and how bad your reputation is. He says, come Come, I love you. I want a relationship with you. I will forgive you. I will clean up the mess. And I'll do it. I'll shoulder it myself on the cross. Remember, the the cross is looming. It's casting a shadow over every narrative. It's the cross that makes all this possible, this seeking and saving. It's the kindness of God that leads Zacchaeus to repentance. Very important here. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't go across the lunch table and say, Zacchaeus, I love you, and it's okay to live as you were. No. Jesus gives him grace, but he speaks truth to him as well. It's not okay to live how you're living. Friends, we live in a culture that conflates compassion and consent. We live in a culture that says you need to be loving and kind and gracious. Well, that, that is true biblically. But that doesn't mean we have to consent to how a person's living. Jesus comes up and loves him, is exceedingly kind to him and says, friend, you've got to go a different way. You've got to take a different path. There is a difference between compassion and consent. God holds grace and truth together, compassion and conviction together. It is not okay to come alongside somebody who's walking and living in sin and say, hey, God loves you. Keep going as you're going. No, no, no. What Jesus says, I love you. Now come and follow me and go in this direction. There's a difference between compassion and consent. We've got to keep that at the forefront of our minds as we consider this cultural moment that we're in. Grace and truth, compassion conviction, they're held together. Here we witness the power of an encounter with Christ. Zacchaeus' life is changed by an encounter with Jesus. So I ask you, how today do we encounter Jesus? How do we see him, relate with him? It's through the beauty and the gift of his word, his revelation to us. That's how we encounter Christ today. Many of us in this room have been transformed by an encounter with Jesus through his word in a sermon, in a small group Bible study, in your own personal devotions, reading the word. That's how we encounter the risen Lord today is through his word. Have you encountered Jesus through his word? Have you been found by him? He loves you. He is seeking you. He desires to transform you as he's transformed Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus announces his repentance, and notice what Jesus does. He stamps his sign and seal of approval on Zacchaeus' salvation. Verse 9 Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. And Jesus has heard and accepted Zacchaeus' faith and repentance. Zacchaeus stands forgiven, validated before Jesus. And and Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. What does Jesus mean by this? Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham. Well, he is a Jew. So literally, yes, he's in the lineage of, of Abraham. But there's something more in view here. Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, we read that Abraham is the father of all who believe. So Zacchaeus is pointing, the Zacchaeus story is pointing to becoming a member of the family of faith. Not biological heritage, but being a member of Jesus' family by faith. He's the father. Abraham is the father of all who believe. And on that afternoon, at that lunch table, Jesus believes. Zacchaeus believes in Jesus. He repents of his sin. He becomes a son of Abraham spiritually at that lunch table. That's what Jesus is referring to. Anybody who trusts in Jesus becomes his child, a child of Abraham, a person of faith. Verses 1 through 9 in this passage have given us a living illustration of what we're about to read in verse 10. Verse 10 is the I have come statement. It's the mission statement. Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, And so Jesus backloads the statement and he frontloads a living illustration of it. Verses one through nine are showing how he seeks and saves the lost and then he declares it in verse 10. What's striking in this passage is the language of seeking. Notice how Jesus first is sought by Zacchaeus and then the tables are turned and we're like, whoa, it was Jesus who's seeking him all along. The reality is every human being, every human being bears the image of God. And part of bearing the image of God is that you were created to know God. And we all are seeking something to fill that void in our lives. It's the God-shaped void that we try to put other things that do not fit. Material things, relationship, substances, reputations, titles, it never fits and we can seek the ends of the earth to fit and they'll never there's never going to work only one thing fits that god-shaped void and it is god himself so that's what i want to leave you with as you think about this christmas season what are you actually seeking after in this life you people talk about the christmas blues what are the christmas blues there's so much build-up and anticipation at christmas families gathering, material things. We put our hope in a lot of things. A lot of people are seeking this time of year. But what are we seeking? And is it fulfilling? This is a wonderful passage that shows us there's only one thing worth seeking, and it's Jesus Christ. And even better, there's one who is seeking you all along, just like Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus all along. Do you believe that God loves you? that he is seeking you, that he desires a relationship with you. Maybe you're not a Christian. We would love to have a conversation with you, walk alongside you, read the word together that you might come to trust in Jesus as Savior. Maybe you're here, you've been a Christian, but you're, you're struggling, you're stagnant in your faith. Know that Jesus is relentless in his pursuit of you. He is seeking you. He loves you. He wants to reinvigorate your faith. In order to be found by Jesus, we have to acknowledge that we might be lost. So there's a humility here. I just want to encourage you just to reflect in the moments as we close. Where are you today? What are you seeking? Will you turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in view of his wonderful grace? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the one who seeks and saves what is lost. Lord, all of us are lost in sin and we need to be found by you, the only Savior, the only one who has power to reach into our dark existence and to shine light upon our path that we might follow you. God, thank you for your word, the privilege of opening it, reading it, understanding it. Help us to live by it. Help us to encounter you through your word. God, I pray for some here in our room who uh, are are, are searching the ends of the earth to find something that will fulfill them. I pray that you would dawn on their hearts, making them know that you alone satisfy our hearts. Fulfill us this season and every season by a living, vibrant faith, in you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.